Shalom and welcome to the One God Report podcast. Bill Schlegel here. For this podcast and God willing for a number of podcasts in the future, I'll be interviewing Troy Salinger, a religious blog writer who lives in southern Mississippi with his wife of 32 years. His blog is called Let the Truth Come Out. I'll, of course, link it in the show notes. And our discussion is called Pre-Incarnate Appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament, Truth or Myth. Troy has written three very insightful, very informative, long blog articles on this topic. I think his blog posts and our discussion here will help people understand the Bible much better. I haven't met Troy yet. I'm looking forward to meeting him actually in about a week and a half at the Biblical Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference here in the Nashville area, October 15 to 17. If you still have a possibility of coming to that, it should be a good time meeting people and hearing sessions presented. I'll say a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast. But I originally met Troy online. Most listeners probably know I used to teach Bible for a Christian university extension in Israel. And when I came to have a better understanding of who God and his Messiah are, I was no longer able to work for that school. And circumstances being what they were, the school put together a document about the deity of Messiah and the Trinity, presenting certain proof texts concerning the deity of Messiah and the Trinity. And I wasn't in the mood to respond at that point. These were my buddies, and some of the claims in this document were very sophomore-ish, should I say, still claiming that Genesis 126 is evidence of a tri-personal God. Hmm. Most of the scholarly world has ditched that idea. But then there's this man in southern Mississippi who started to painstakingly, I would say, point by point go through this document. And eventually, Troy Salinger produced, I think, like eight blog posts where he went through these proof texts for the deity of Christ and the Trinity and said, well, you know what, there's really a better way to understand these texts. And that's how I got to know Troy originally. And I've appreciated many of his blog posts. And I'm looking forward to our discussion with him now about pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament, truth or myth. Let's get to our discussion. Troy Salinger, welcome to the One God Report podcast. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate you uh, having me. I've been looking forward to it. And so have I. And we are going to talk about the pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament, truth or myth. Troy, you've studied these pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus, the the pre-existence, I think maybe we could also say of Jesus in some detail. So I'm really looking forward to your insights into these supposed pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God. How would you start off a conversation about these supposed pre-incarnate appearances? Well, uh, I think we need to look at what what the motivation behind it is. Why do 
some Christians feel the need uh, to see or to find pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. It seems to me the whole motivation of it is based on a presupposition, that being that Jesus was something more than just a, a simple human being. He was something uh, other than just a man. Yeah, that he's God. Right. Somehow. Mm -hmm. Right. Of course, there were, there were other viewpoints from, say, the uh, Gnostics, you know, considered Jesus uh, to be a spirit emanation out of God. The ancient Aryans believed that the Son of God was, a, was the first created being. Again, a spirit being a second subordinate God. Of course, the Trinitarians have a different view, right? They believe that the Son of God is e eternally begotten from the Father of the same substance and essence, nature as the Father. Therefore, he is fully God, just as fully God as the Father. So that plays into the whole motivation. Why are we even having this discussion, right? So for those who do not view Jesus as anything more than a human being, there's no incentive, right, to search the Old Testament to find appearances, pre-incarnate appearances of, of Christ. We see Jesus as simply a human being. He had his coming into existence at the moment of his conception in, in his mother's womb. So we don't see the need to find these pre-incarnate appearances. Would part of that as well, Troy, be that I don't think there's anybody in the New Testament that says, hey, see that angel back there in the book of Genesis? That was the pre-incarnate God, the Son, or the second person of the Trinity, making himself known, appearing somehow to human beings. There's nobody in the New Testament that makes this claim, and maybe you'll get into this point later, but in the sense, isn't that the reason people are motivated to go themselves then and find some evidence of this pre-incarnate God person? Yes, yes. I, uh, that, that's, this was one of the points of, that I wanted to bring up. Uh, there is a lack of New Testament attestation to the fact that, that Christ was appearing in the Old Testament in his pre-incarnate state. Typically, there are three passages that people will bring up that they think support the idea that, that Jesus was appearing in the Old Testament. If you want to talk about these three passages, we can do that. But, you know, it seems to me uh, this, is, this is one of the definitely one of the weaknesses of this position, because, you know, ever since this idea took hold, which uh, we, you know, we can get into that a little bit, it, it began in the middle of the second century, the first uh, Christian writer to uh, propose this idea was a guy named Justin. His writing is typically dated around 150. Uh, he was the first one to propose this concept that certain appearances of God in the Old Testament were actually Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Hmm. Troy, let me interrupt you a second. I mean, that's telling itself. 
that yeah. it's in the century following Jesus that this is first proposed. People should know the source of their understanding or the sources of their belief. And if this idea or these ideas of a pre-incarnate appearance of a god don't show up in the historical record until the second century, that itself is telling. And actually, I've just been rereading some of Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo the Jew, and mm. Trifo specifically says, as Justin Martyr talks about this lesser God in his estimation, it was not the maker of the heavens and the earth, it was a lesser God who did the maker, yes. the maker of heaven and earth's will. Trifo says, hey, these are the first time we've heard these ideas. Yeah. We haven't heard these before. And that is an amazing statement because if the first century New Testament documents were making these claims, the Jewish people would have jumped all over it and said, no, this is ridiculous. You know, there's no second God figure in the Hebrew scriptures that's operating and making himself known in some way, shape or form to the patriarchs. This is a new idea, Trifo says. These are new, these are new to us. So yeah, it's the second century and that's the time that the the Jewish people really are able to say, hey, what you're talking about is, is wrong. Right. But uh, ever since the second century, I mean, Christians, all Christian writers, uh, when writing about Christ, have not failed to put Christ in the Old Testament. They do it quite often, uh, even down, you know, from Justin's time all the way down to today, people who believe that Jesus was more than a human being and that he pre-existed his incarnation are not shy about referring to Old Testament appearances of God and, and saying that that is Christ, pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. So my point is, if, if this was true, if the authors of the New Testament held this view, I find it a little funny that they don't do the same thing that Christians have been doing since Justin's day. Like I said, there, uh, there are possibly three passages in the New Testament which Trinitarians usually point to as proofs that Jesus was appearing in, in the Old Testament. You have uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, then 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9, and then you have Jude 5. And if you want, we can go through those quickly and just show how these are used uh, to support this, this idea, but uh, it's really flimsy, flimsy exegesis that's going on. Troy, uh, let's, Troy, let's do that. Let me ask you one other question first, uh -huh. and that is, isn't another motivation the idea that you have a number of places in the Bible where it's very clear that the statement is that God cannot be seen and Therefore, somehow, when, be it a theophany, the appearance of God, or a Christophany, the appearance of the Christ in the Old Testament, it's not, for some reason, the Father, right? The Father right. can't be seen, or maybe, I don't know, the whole Trinity can't be seen. So somehow, the claim would be that, well, okay, back here we have God being seen, but it can't be the Father, because we know from the New Testament that, that God cannot be seen. Is that another motivation for people to say, well, this is the second person of the Godhead that's actually seen? And it's pretty clear that Jesus Christ was seen. He lived on the earth for 
some 30 plus years. So he was seen. Yeah. Yeah. So you have statements in the New Testament that explicitly say that no one has ever seen God. Paul makes a statement in uh, 1 Timothy 6.16, no one has ever seen or can see God. But yet in, in the Old Testament, you have these passages where it says Yahweh appeared to so-and-so. So what the conclusion that the Trinitarians come to, and I suppose other, other people who believe in the pre-existence of Jesus, but not necessarily Trinitarianism, uh, the, the conclusion that they arrive at is that this, this other person was the pre-incarnation. So, yeah, that's definitely one of the motivations. Now, when, when we think about that, the, the problem with that claim is, don't Trinitarians teach that the Son of God is of one essence, one nature, the same, you know, the same substance and nature as God the Father, correct? Fully yeah, God. he's still God. Uh, in every sense, uh, he, he is exactly like God. Okay, so Trinitarians believe, according to Philippians 2.6, that the pre-incarnate Jesus existed in the form of God. So that whatever form God had, that is, whatever form the Father exists in, that is the form that the pre-incarnate son existed in. So the problem I have with that, with their claim is that how is it? And, and I've never heard a Trinitarian answer this question. I would love to, to hear, you know, how they would explain this. How is it that the father cannot be seen, but the son who is exactly the same as the father in every way as he existed in the same form as the father, same nature, same essence. How is it the Father cannot be seen, but the Son can be seen? So I've never heard that explained. I, I think that alone right there uh, kind of knocks the, the wind out of the sails of that claim. Yes, it says in the New Testament, no one has ever seen God. And yes, it says in the Old Testament that Yahweh appeared to so-and-so and so-and-so. And we'll get into that and explain, I think, a, a better way to look at that uh, than what the Trinitarians have proposed. Yeah, Troy, just before we look at those few passages you mentioned in the New Testament, another point maybe to make is that it's one thing to state or believe that the man Jesus Christ had some form of pre-existence. Theoretically, he could have pre-existed as a created being, like Justin yeah. believed and like uh, uh, many of the church fathers of the first couple of centuries believed, or, and like Arianism and Jehovah's Witnesses today, he was a created being who pre-existed. So pre-existence itself does not prove the deity of Jesus. That's absolutely correct. A pre-existent Jesus could be the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Could be the Jesus of the Arians. Could be the Jesus of the Mormons. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be the Trini Trinitarian Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. No, that's, that's a good point, absolutely. So, Troy, how about those three passages in the New Testament you mentioned, 1 Corinthians 10, I think, and passage in Jude? Yeah, so we'll go to 1 Corinthians 10. 
two of the passages are there. Let's say verse in verses three and four, Paul says, uh, speaking of the Israelites after they had come out of Egypt, he says that they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So this is taken by, at least by Trinitarians. Uh, I'm not sure how other viewpoints about Jesus being preexistent would, would view this passage, but, uh, but I know that it has been used by many Trinitarian apologists. So the claim is that the rock uh, from which the, the Israelites were, were given water to drink, I don't know if what the claim is exactly. Are they if they saying that the rock is literally Christ? I mean, it, it seems like that's what they're saying. You know, at first glance, it might seem like that's what Paul is saying, right? Which is an absurdity. Right, it's such an absurd notion to the Apostle Paul. So, what's going on there? Okay, what? How can we explain that? I can say something about that too, real quick. Go ahead. I'd love to hear what you yeah. asked. As one reads the rest of the passage, Paul says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, now these things are types. They're types. They're foreshadowings. And you have lots of different translations of it. These things are examples or these things, some say warnings, but it's a type. It's an image. It's a picture. The idea of water coming out of the rock is a provision by the Almighty God for the Israelites. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is God's provision for mankind, for life and sustenance. Yes. So he's making a comparison. He's making a typology comparison. It says right there in chapter 10, verse 11. Yeah. I think another point, you know, sometimes what, what Scripture doesn't say, it can be instructive also. So if Paul's intention was in this passage was to portray Jesus as God, and to portray Jesus as present with the Israelites after they had come out of Egypt, it seems like he would have chose a better element from the story to equate Jesus with. In verse 2 of the passage, he mentions how the Israelites, he says they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, when you go back and you read the, the history in the book of Exodus, you see this phenomenon of the cloud. The cloud, the pillar of cloud, is always present among the Israelites. This is the presence of God among them. Wouldn't it have been better for Paul if, if it was his intention to, you know, portray Jesus as God and to portray him as present among the Israelites, to use the cloud as the best example? He could also have said, since it is claimed by Trinitarians quite often that the angel of the Lord accompanied the Israelites all through their journey uh, to the promised land, why didn't he say that Jesus was the angel of the Lord? To say that Jesus was the rock in a most literal sense is just an absurd, absurd idea. Certainly, Paul means it in a non-literal sense. As you said before, he speaks of typology. Uh, he mentions that the Israelites were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
were they literally baptized into Moses in the sea? No. They're passing through the, the sea, the Red Sea, with Moses was something that typified what Christians experience in their baptism. So in the same sense, as you pointed out, I, I think that this is just saying that for the Israelites, the rock was what Jesus is for us. The rock was God's provision for something that the Israelites needed at the, at the time. They needed life-giving water. Without water in a desert, you're going to die. And God provided that through, through the rock. So what the rock was to them is what Christ is to us. I don't think Paul means any more than that. I just find it very strange that uh, Trinitarians would really point to this passage as, a, as a evidence of pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And Troy, let me just add, kind of uh -huh. related to what you were first saying, too, that anybody who makes this kind of suggestion, it's almost like they're not reading the Apostle Paul's letters. They're taking just a strange sort of mysterious, in this case, uh, a metaphor or a typology, and creating this huge new idea that there's a second God. When the rest of Paul, he constantly distinguishes between God, all of God, not just one member or one person of God or something, but he constantly distinguishes between God and Jesus Christ. Blessed yeah. be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over again in Paul. Anybody who reads Paul, you can see over and over again the differentiation between God and Jesus Christ. And then to take this one verse of a metaphor or typology and say, see, Jesus is pre-existent, one member of a tri-personal Godhead. Come on, open the rest of Paul's books. Just yeah. read the rest of 1 Corinthians and see if you think that Paul thinks that Jesus Christ is God. Okay, so how about 1 Corinthians 10.9? What's going on with that verse? Well, let's go ahead and read it. Paul says... Well, I'm going to read it as uh, some translations put it. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. All right. So he's referring to an incident with the people of Israel after they had come out of Egypt when they grumbled against the Lord. I think the incidents in Numbers 21, I believe. And then God sent snakes among the people as a judgment. So what is claimed here is that we should not test Christ as some of them did. People that believe, you know, that Christ preexisted in some form before becoming a man, uh, believe that Christ was with the Israelites during their journey and they put him to the test. That's what they believe that's what Paul is referring to here, that they put Christ to the test. So typically when you hear this, you know, on an apologist website, or video, most of the time they fail to mention the fact that there are variants in the manuscripts. Christ is just one reading in the manuscripts. Now it's an old reading. It's in some of the older manuscripts, but there are, there's another reading which says Lord instead of Christ. That still has a good manuscript authority. And then there's a lesser uh, known reading, which says God. So you have three variants in the manuscripts, Christ, Lord, and God. 
So, you know, I think that anybody who is speaking on this passage, I think it's irresponsible to not mention that fact. I know a lot of modern translations of versions of the Bible, English versions, tend to go with the Christ reading here. And look, I'm not an expert in Greek manuscripts and their authority and how well attested this one is to the other ones. But, you know, usually what people will say is that the harder reading is usually would probably be the original reading. And since they say Christ here would be the harder reading because just of the fact that it puts Christ back in Israelite history, there's no mention of Christ in the passage in Numbers 21. So they say that would be the harder reading, so it's more likely the original. And it, it is, from what I understand, it is attested very early on. But so is the reading Lord. I would like to suggest maybe there was, there's another possibility here, that the original reading was Lord, which to early believers could be ambiguous. Lord in the early church time could refer to either God or to Jesus. This would account for the variant readings of God and Christ. Some scribe coming across the word Lord thought it was too ambiguous. And you can see how, according to what the presuppositions of the scribe was, somebody could have replaced Lord with Christ. Another scribe could have replaced Lord with God, trying to be less ambiguous in the passage. One other possibility is in the Christ reading, it actually has the definite article there. And so it would be saying we should not test the Christ as some of them did. So we could take this to be meaning here that if you go and you read the passage in, in Numbers 21, not only were they putting God to the test, but it also says that they were grumbling against Moses. So. What Paul could be saying here is using the Christ in its most basic meaning of the anointed one, which would refer to the one whom God has put as a ruler over his people. And he could be referring this to, to Moses. Uh, so he would, in a sense, be saying we should not test the anointed one or the one whom God has chosen to lead his people as some of them did which would be a reference to Moses. Now, I know Moses, I don't believe Moses is anywhere referred to in the Old Testament by the word Mashiach, but this, I think, is at least a possibility. In any case, to use this verse as a proof text of the preexistence of Christ, much less his deity, seems a little much. As we, could, as we said about the previous verse uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, if the authors of the New Testament really believed that Jesus was God, number one, or even if they just believed that he preexisted in some form, I just, I just think it would be something that would be mentioned a lot more often in the New Testament and a lot more explicitly. Why aren't they referring to these incidents in uh, Israel's history where Jesus or the Son of God was uh, active. 
Instead, you get these, what, what do we have? Basically three verses that are brought up as proof text for pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. And they're very weak. Two of the verses have a variance, and one of them is easily explained in some other way. So these three verses just, are, in my opinion, are just too weak to make a, a valid argument. Paul probably wrote 1 Corinthians in the late 50s, 57, 58 AD. And you have no record of the Apostle Paul preaching in the book of Acts, talking about a pre-existent Christ. And here we have, in the context of really a warning to the Corinthian believers of not sinning. And Paul is using examples, he says that, of these yes. types that happened in the Old Testament. This is supposedly what we're to draw out this essential doctrine from. Why didn't Paul say this in the book of Acts anywhere? Why didn't he give us about five chapters in Romans or at least a chapter in 1 Corinthians about pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament? Right. Okay. How about uh, the Jude verse? All right. So let's look at Jude 5. This is a favorite of Trinitarian Apologies. It reads, though you already know this, I want to remind you that Jesus delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, so typically an apologist on their website or in a video, they'll mention this verse, they'll quote it just the way I quoted it, and they'll see, see, there you go. Jesus delivered the people out of Egypt. Case closed, right? But, I mean, anybody who's done a little bit of study on this passage knows that there are variants in the manuscripts. Mm. And it really irritates me when Trinitarian apologists bring this verse out but fail to mention the fact that they are variants. They just present it like... This is the, the only way the manuscript reads. And so this is, we have to accept this as the truth. So there are variants in, in the manuscript there. The variants, uh, there are actually a number of them. So the best attested ones, uh, you have Jesus, you have Lord without the definite article, and you have the Lord. Now, you have some other minor uh, variants there, uh, but the better, the better attested manuscripts, and it's pretty equal. I mean, if you study out, the, you know, I'm not going to get into the manuscript evidence and all that. Uh, but if you study it out, you know, there are a lot of papers online that you can read about this. The manuscript evidence is pretty much equal between the Jesus reading and the Lord or the Lord readings. That fact alone should caution these apologists from making just a blanket assertion, uh, assertion that Jesus led the people out of, out of Egypt. Whenever you see this many variants in the manuscripts for one specific verse, that tells you something's going on there. Why so many variants? Well, because the original was probably ambiguous which would lead me to believe that the original probably said Lord 
kurios, without the, without the definite all, which in, in the New Testament, in my mind, would signify that kurios is being used there as a substitute for, for Yahweh, the divine name. That Jude probably intended to say that, that it was Yahweh who delivered the people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. What probably happened was in time, as people began to latch on to the idea that Jesus was more than just a human being, and that eventually developed into Jesus's full-blown deity, right? Well, I can imagine some scribe at some point coming across this text, and it says, Lord, and him not knowing if the Lord refers to God or to Jesus, but familiar with some traditions that we can go back to Justin Martyr, actually, I believe, said that Jesus delivered the people out of Egypt. So he, he wasn't quoting any text when he said it, though. He just made the assertion. So you can imagine a scribe later, familiar with that tradition, came across this text, saw that it said Lord, and that was uh, a little ambiguous and wanted to make it more plain. And so some scribe changed it to make it more plain. Some scribes put a definite article before the curios, so it would be more definite to be about Jesus. Obviously, some scribe just went, went right ahead and put Jesus in there. Other scribes put other things, okay? So, what, you know, whenever you see that many variants in the, on a passage, you know something's going on there. The original text was probably ambiguous, and some scribe changed it in order to make it less ambiguous. That's a very weak passage to use as a proof text for pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Yep. And Troy, can I just add, if you got to appeal to Jude 5 with a passage that has variants in it, for one of the main evidences in the New Testament, that Jesus somehow pre-existed and had an active role with Israel coming out of Egypt. This is the, I would say, desperation you need to go to. Yeah. Something's wrong. The Apostle Paul should have had three chapters about this topic in the book of Romans, for crying out loud. Right. You don't just find one little, uh, you know, kind of maybe clinging on to this passage in Jude 5, where in Jude 1-4, God, again, is differentiated from Jesus Christ. So it just, it, it's not good exegesis. You're putting blinders on and looking for one little possibility where there's a textual variant and you're going to say, see? Exactly. As I pointed out before, ever since Justin's time, mm. Christians are very eager to talk about Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. They do it as often as they can. But the lack of such speech and language in the New Testament is very striking. If they believe that, that Jesus is God and they believe that he preexisted, that he was appearing all over the Old Testament, they fail to mention it. Not just mention it once or twice, but that it wouldn't be uh, something that they bring up quite often. You would expect that. Yeah, it's actually quite to the contrary. When they talk about the Christ, they don't talk about him as uh, active in Old Testament passages. No. We will stop there for now. Next time, we plan to look closer at the claim that when the angel of the Lord, 
the angel of Yahweh, appears in the Old Testament, that this is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God in the Old Testament. And I think we'll see a much better understanding that is true to the scriptures for who this or these angels of the Lord are. Just one other thing to say about the claims that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is appealing to the Old Testament in an effort to show a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. As I've been preparing for my presentation for the upcoming Biblical Unitarian Conference, the topic for my presentation is Finding Evidences for the Deity of Christ in the Old Testament is not a New Testament exercise. In preparing for my presentation, I've come across this testimony by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 26. And this is a record after Paul has written many of his epistles, including First and Second Timothy and Galatians, First and Second Corinthians and Romans. After Paul has written these epistles, and he's giving his testimony in the city of Caesarea before the Roman procurator and the Jewish leader, Herod Agrippa II. And note what Paul says in Acts chapter 26 and verse 22. He says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. Unquote. Paul here declares, after he's written Romans and 1 Corinthians, that he is saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come true. Now, if you want to interpret 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as Paul saying that he believed Jesus was present and active in bringing Israel out of Egypt, you make Paul into a liar. Because his testimony here before these leaders was that he said nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. Let's not make Paul a liar and say that he believed and declared that Jesus was the one who literally was present and brought Israel out of Egypt. That's a lot more than what Moses and the prophet said. So tune in next time as we continue the discussion with Troy Salinger about the supposed pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament. Yishma'u anavim v'yishmachu. The humble will hear and rejoice.